0: And the way that I want you to think about cues is like recipes. So there are 96 cues. It does not mean that you should use all 96 of them. In fact, that would be like trying to put everything into the same dish. It's actually much better to think about what cues are you already naturally using that you want to leverage or level up or pump up or use more purposely. Great. Those are your staples. This is the Happen to Your Career podcast with Scott Anthony Barlow. We help you stop doing work that doesn't fit you, figure out what does, and make it happen. We help you define the work that's unapologetically you, and then go get it.
1: If you're ready to make a change, keep listening. Here's Scott. Here's Scott.
0: Here's Scott.
1: Here on Happen to Your Career, we've had hundreds of episodes about how to set yourself up for success during the career change process from way before the actual interview to where you're leveraging psychology to where you're doing test drive conversations and everything that happens in between all the way to negotiation. You have one good chance to make a wonderful impression, at least the first time around. In fact, studies show that people make a first judgment in less than seven seconds. That doesn't give you a lot of time to make a great impression. So the question is, what can you do to use those seven seconds, or even less, to your advantage?
0: In those first few milliseconds of someone seeing you, they are getting very quick, but very simple cues. So yes, they're looking at your picture, they're looking at your gestures, your expression, your posture, your colors, but they're also very quickly looking at the first few words of your headline. So just like we talked about the verbal cues for your first ten words out of your mouth, you also want those first ten words in your headline to matter. That's
1: Vanessa Van Edwards. Vanessa's the lead investigator at the science of people and is renowned for teaching science backed people skills to audiences around the world, including at South by Southwest, which I've been to in the past and love, MIT, CES. Not only is she a speaker and researcher, but Vanessa is also a national best selling author, including her newest book, Cues Master the Secret Language of Charismatic Communication. In this book, which I've read, I love. She talks about the tiny signals we send to others 24-7 through our body language, facial expressions, word choice, vocal inflection, and how they have a massive impact on how we and our ideas come across. Our cues can either enhance our message or undermine it. So today, let's dive into the conversation with Vanessa. Here's her describing her early career trajectory.
0: It seems like if you look at like the trajectory of my career, it seems very random. But when I look back, I know there were specific reasons why I did each thing that led me to be able to do what I do now, which is weird. Like I have a weird, weird job. When I was asked, you know, in elementary school or even in college, what do you want to do with your life? You know, YouTube was not a thing. There was no such thing as YouTube. There was no such thing as like writer meets vlogger. Like that This just wasn't a thing. So I didn't realize that I was actually building lots of skills that got me to here. But the biggest one is when I always have had a natural inclination towards language. So in high school, I took Spanish and French and I just, it seemed very easy for me. Math and science were okay, but wow, I just love those languages. And then in college, someone said, oh, you should take the hardest language. (laughs) Well, (laughs) hold on. (laughs) Why did you feel that was a good idea at the the time? Why did I feel that was a good idea? Because someone was like, oh, you know, if you are able to add Chinese Mandarin to your repertoire, you'll get a job anywhere. I thought, okay, it would be great to get a job anywhere. So I enrolled in Mandarin classes and loved it. Like immediately loved it. So I ended up majoring in Chinese international studies. I actually think... The reason I was supposed to do that was because I ended up meeting my husband, studying abroad in China. Oh, so I study abroad in China. I meet my husband. He was also studying abroad from George Washington University. We fell in love 15 years later. You know, we're still together. We have a baby. We got married uh, five years later. So I think that that path was like a, a romantic path. But here's where I think the language piece ended up being important is I was very good at languages. And at this time, I was also very, very awkward. And it was that horrible time in your career where you're going on tons of interviews. You're trying to network. You're doing those information sessions. You're trying to make long lasting friendships. Like at that point, I was doing the most peopling every day that I had ever done. And I was quite bad at peopleing. I'm a recovering, awkward person. So it's very hard for me to process lots of social information. I also have a problem where I misinterpret neutral cues as negative. So I always would like my joke with my husband. I come home from a party and I'm like, is she mad at me? Does everyone hate me? Did I do something wrong? He's like, no. What are you talking about? So, because of that, and this was in 2005. Yeah, I remember specifically. I watched a very big interview at the time, which was Larry on Larry King Live. Lance Armstrong went on saying that he had never doped. Now, of course, we know later that he definitely had a. We all know how that ends. (laughs) Yep, massive undercover doping scheme. I remember watching that interview, and he tells this massive lie, right? Like huge lie, and then lip purses presses his lips together. And I remember watching thinking, what was that? Now I didn't realize at the time that was the very first cue I ever consciously spotted. And I thought, as I started doing the research, I started looking into like, you know, nonverbal textbooks and body language research. And I was like, Oh, it's a lip purse. A lip purse is kind of seen as a universal sign of withholding or, or holding back. And I wondered what if I could study cues? Like I study foreign languages? You know, in a foreign language, the very first thing you do is you learn vocab words and then you begin to put them together. And so I thought, well, I don't speak people, right? I speak English, but I don't speak people. I really have a hard time I misinterpret facial expressions. I don't know what to do with my hands when I talk. I have no idea how to submit, present myself as confident. What if I could look at confident people and catalog all the cues they use? down to the gesture. And so that was the start in 2005 of this research where I slowly started to catalog every cue that humans send. And that's what a cue is, a social signal. Little did I know that 17 years later, (laughs) I would have a book called Cues and that would be my entire career. That was a very fast forward. I'm happy to dig into any. That was sort of the seed that accidentally got me into this path.
1: What else happened along the way that really helped to cement that for you? That really helped to confirm that you were on that right path?
0: i think pretty early on i had distinguished there are two kind of types or buckets of cues there's positive cues that highly charismatic compelling people use and there's negative cues that whether they're athletes or politicians or business leaders they have these negative cues when they're lying or they're hiding something so okay very simply i want to show less negative cues and i want to show more positive cues so i took video of myself giving a presentation And I was like, let's see, look at the cues I use and let's see what language I'm sending. And it was so interesting because it was like my little transcript. I had a little transcript and I was writing down all the cues next to my yeah. transcript. I'm very scientific, right? Like I, I learned in a very black and white way. So I had a transcript of my talk and then I was writing the cues in the margin and it was like negative Q, negative Q, negative Q, negative Q, positive Q, negative, 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 negative. And I looked at this sheet paper and of course it was color coded because you know that I like color coding and it was all red by the way. That is the reason why cues red is red is because I had too many negative cues. And I had no idea. I had no idea that I was sending off all those cues because I worked really hard on that presentation, right? Like I had prepped the perfect slides. I had great answers. I had great statistics and it didn't really matter, right? Like even though I had this perfect presentation, I was giving away all of my, I didn't know it at the time, I was giving away all my confidence. That was a big aha moment for me to realize I need to take control of my cues. Like there is no accidental, right? And that's a lot. That's a big mistake of people who are very smart is they show up. They think my ideas can speak for me, right? I have such good ideas. My ideas will speak for themselves. And then we get into the room and we wonder why people are on their phones. We wonder why we don't get called back into the interview. We wonder why we're interrupted or not respected or not paid enough. I know it's because we are accidentally sending cues that don't serve us.
1: Let's talk about that for... Probably more than a few minutes. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> Here's what I'd love to focus in on. I can't tell you the number of conversations that I've had over the last 20 years working as an HR leader, working in recruiting, going into interviews myself. You mentioned interviews. And it, as an example, a very visible example that I think almost everyone can point to in some way or another, where it's a situation where you don't necessarily get immediate feedback. Sometimes you do, sometimes you have other people's cues, and sometimes you have, you know, someone expressing their intentions immediately, but a lot of the times it's a we're ending it and we're going to find out. And that creates somewhat precarious situation where you don't necessarily know how you did or why you did. And so many people I've encountered over the years are surprised when they think something went really, really well. And then lo and behold, you know, they came in the second place <laughs> or they came in yeah, not getting the job at all, whatever it might be. So what are some of the biggest mistakes that you see in, let's just say that type of situation, that type of personal interaction where you want to allow people to like you because people are basing a decision, at least partially, maybe subconsciously on that.
0: Yes. Okay. So first of all, if this has happened to you, you are so not alone. So if it's happened to you where you think that date went great, that meeting went awesome, that interview went well, and then all of a sudden you realize you didn't get the job, they didn't call you back, they didn't write back. You are not alone in that. And the biggest mistake that I see actually is a mistake that smart people make, very successful make this mistake, which is they under cue, they under signal. So here's why this happens. You have an interview, a negotiation a pitch, okay? And you're really excited and you prepare, you know, you prepare answers, you script out stories, you prepare for the hardball questions, you prepare for the good questions, you remember their name, right? You think a lot about the verbal and verbal cues are important, right? That is one area of cues. The problem is, is when you are so focused on the idea, when you are so focused on delivering answer, especially like agenda, I think a lot of very smart, organized people, this was me. I had an agenda in my head. I had to get through Right. And so you walk into the interview and you're so focused on the agenda and some of the memorization and memorization can actually kill charisma that you're just like deliver, 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 which means you're under signaling with your body. You're under signaling with your face. You're under, you're delivering with a vocal power that's memorized. Right. So if I have a memorized answer, it's going to sound script. It's going to sound inauthentic, even if it isn't. Because you've rehearsed it so many times, you've rehearsed the emotion out of it. So a myth that people have is that to be powerful or impressive, they should under-emote. They should be stoic and hide all their cues. That is so far from the truth. Highly charismatic people are actually very expressive. They are just purposefully so. They know how to express warmth and trust. They know how to express competence and productivity. They know how to express a disagreement or underwhelm with something they don't like. And so that is the biggest thing people make is they under signal because they don't know what to do with their signals.
1: That's really interesting. And I got to tell you that this has been really kind of fascinating. I read the book in the last probably three days or so here. Whoa, cool. And it was wonderful. And I will tell you first and foremost that my favorite part was actually, here's a little teaser for everyone because uh, we, won't, we won't have time to talk about everything, but the part where you decoded the Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper. And that was, that was fascinating, partially because I'm a fan of, you know, Leonardo da Vinci's work and he's done some fat. Yeah. Let's be honest. Who's not? not? Yeah. Also, (laughs) it was really, really fascinating to look at it in a completely different light. But the other bigger reason, (laughs) this has been interesting for me, is I got a concussion last Sunday playing ice hockey. So... I'm going somewhere with this, I promise. But what has happened is because my brain is healing, all of the cues that I do on autopilot on a normal given day are actually more challenging. So it was really interesting to go through the book and then in some ways relearn many of the things that I've been doing for years and years. And now they're actually hard. My wife and I went to a group dinner last night Mm -hmm. and it was a struggle for me to do some of the cues that I would normally do on autopilot. So here's my question for you. You know, as people are beginning to pay attention to this, maybe for the first time, maybe after a concussion, I don't know, (laughs) whenever they need to, how would you advise them to start practicing this?
0: It's interesting because I wonder if that almost gives you a little bit of a blank slate, right? Like to retest and retry cues is kind of like an interesting way to think about it. It's been a Um, weird experiment. Yeah. Like that's like a very cool experiment. And what a great timing with the book, not horrible timing for a concussion. (laughs) It's (laughs) it's, It's it's never a great time to get a concussion, but if it had to be, you know, how about now? Uh, So there are 96 cues in the book. And the way that I want you to think about cues is like recipes. So Mm. There are 96 cues. It does not mean that you should use all 96 of them. In fact, that would be like trying to put everything into the same dish. It's actually much better to think about what cues are you already naturally using? So hopefully as you're reading, and this is what people have been telling me as they read, which is so great is, oh, I didn't realize I was doing that cue and that was serving me. So A, what cues are you already naturally using that you want to leverage or level up or pump up or use more purposely? Great. Those are your staples right? Like those are like the favorite things, your favorite foods you like to cook with. They tend to be in a lot of your dishes. Great. The next thing I want you to think about is like, what are the dishes that sound really good? So what are the cues as you're reading? You're like, Ooh, Mm. I like that cue. I want, I want to try that. And slowly start adding it, trying it on, right? Like see if you like the flavor. The first time you might not love it, right? The first time we try on any cue, it can feel a little uncomfortable, a little bit foreign, yeah. but I want you to try it in three different types of scenarios with three different people. And that's because some cues, like I use some cues a lot more with my daughter and my husband than I do professionally, right? Like mm-hmm. one's dessert, one's dinner. You know, if we're going to keep going on the food metaphor, I like food, you know, we should think about it.
1: Well, Let's see how far we can push this food metaphor. I'm going I'm I'm to keep be-
0: pushing it. Yeah. It's almost lunchtime. I'm going to keep pushing it. Exactly. So, right. So like, You're going to figure out what goes in which scenario, which might mean trying different places. There is going to be some cues that you do not like, right? You have food allergies to those cues. And that's also very empowering because I don't want you to do cues that are inauthentic. So start this cue by cue. First, getting very purposeful with the cues that you already use naturally. Those are the best. Second, challenge yourself. I want to try a cue a day or a cue a week. I want to try it on. And the other way that we can practice this is spotting all 96 cues. So seeing in the next few weeks, can you spot cues on your friends, in your colleagues, on reality TV, in movies, that's also training a very specific part of your brain. So they've actually identified that we use very specific parts of our brain to identify cues. There's an area of our brain called the fusiform face area. This is a specific area of our brain that we use to decode facial expressions. If we are not used to doing this, if we've never done this before, it can literally feel like exercising a muscle for the first time, right? So you're going to have to start with like smaller weights, right? And then work your way up. So even just learning to spot the cues is also a way that you can sort of uh, begin to try them on.
1: First of all, I really appreciate that because long before I knew anything about cues, had A variety of mentors that made me watch a video of myself over and over and over again. It was so painful at first. Let's be honest. It's horrible. It's horrible. At some point it's not that big of a deal anymore, but it was painful for a long time. And Mm -hmm. the benefit out of it was that I got to see all of those parts and pieces, those different cues in action when they worked well, when they worked quite frankly, terribly. So I appreciate those other ways to look at it too. And the point that, Hey, it's not a case where you need to master all 96 cues, oh. but instead it's choosing what you're going to bring into your repertoire. Yeah. Percent. And I
0: think another thing that you can look for. So I think it's, Oh gosh, if you can get a video of yourself presenting or speaking something important, like not just like a little update, but like yeah. presenting or, or sharing something, it's so helpful to code it. Another thing that you can do for yourself is I think everyone should know their own nervous tells. Mm. Right. Everyone should know what tick do you have that kind of your anxiety leaks in that way. And they're different for everyone. There's some typical danger zone cues. And I talk about those in the book, but what do you do when you knew you were anxious, right? So you can find a video of yourself where you knew You were sweating it, right? Like during that particular question, or you were really nervous delivering that story, or you even knew you were deceiving someone. Pay attention to what you did, not only non-verbally, but verbally, vocally. Like for example, there's some studies that look at liars and their patterns of their lies. And not every time, but they often find that liars will use words like to be honest, to be frank they'll actually call out honesty, even though they're about to lie, which is like a very odd behavior thing. So even pay attention to the type of verbal signals you might be giving out. I think that's a really empowering thing to know about yourself.
1: Let's talk about some specific places where our listeners might be able to apply it. How about this? Let's take a real example that one of our clients is experiencing right now. So she's in the process of identifying her next career move, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's a, a wonderful opportunity for her. And she, for the most part, is having a good time with it. That said, she's in this space where she's now trying to identify what roles are interesting to her and where she wants to spend you know, the next number of years. And- She's going through this mini career experiment that we call the social Goldilocks, where she's scheduling a whole series of super short calls with people that have roles that she might be interested in. So in this case, she's doing a lot of Zoom calls, a lot of hmm. video chat, a lot of like what you and I are doing right this yeah. very second, right? Yeah. So yeah. here's my question. I know that you break down charisma into warmth and competence, right? Mm-hmm. So how can she, during those video calls, build both warmth and competence very, very quickly?
0: Okay. So I'm going to give a really specific formula here. Like this is for video calls are specific cues we need to see to be able to diagnose someone's warmth and competence. So these are crazy specific, but they really work. Perfect. First thing is you need to make sure if you are doing video calls that you are honoring space rules. This is called proxemics. It's a very important aspect of human behavior. And the biggest mistake people make on video is they get too close to their camera. So they are all up in their cameras. So like their face is super close like this. I want you to make sure I want you to measure the distance between your nose and the camera. And I want you to make sure it is at least 18 inches away case. That's the very first thing. And the reason for that is because if it is closer than 18 inches, you are accidentally triggering someone's fear response. When someone comes into our intimate zone too quickly, we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's like a digital close talker. It makes us feel like we're being threatened. So one, right from that very first impression, make sure you are in the sweet spot, which is 18 inches to three feet away from your camera. It sounds very silly, but that's how far we want to be from the person that we're talking to. So that's number one is before you even get on that video call, take some measurements. And at my home, setup, when I'm at my home studio, I have very specific setups in my room to just set me up for more charisma. Like for example, I have to sit today because I'm in a boring conference room in my publisher's office, but normally I'm standing. Not everyone has to stand, but I have noticed it changes my vocal power. Oh yeah. When when I'm standing, I just can deliver with more breath. So second, decide if you want to stand or sit, right? Like decide, do a couple of experiments. Where do you sound like your best self? Is it standing or sitting? So that's even before you hop on the call. Second, or actually third, the moment you come on camera, I would love for you to do a nonverbal greeting. So we love this as humans. And in person, we know this instinctively, right? We know instinctively when we see someone, we reach out, we high five, we handshake, we cheek kiss, we hug, we have some sort of a nonverbal greeting. On video, that awkwardness that can happen in the first few seconds of a video is because our brain is like, "What do we do? What do we do? We can't touch them. What do we do?" <laughs> I mean, we're trying to like think Whoa. we can't handshake, so it's so weird. So instead, I want you to in your head replace the handshake with the nonverbal greeting. My favorite is just a wave. So the moment I hop on video, I go, "Hey, good morning, good to see you," and I give a little wave. How are you? Right. Um, On YouTube, every single one of my YouTube videos, I start with a double handed hi, (laughs) both sides. So, third is some sort of nonverbal greeting. And the last thing I would say is we have dismissed verbal a lot in this interview, but verbal does matter. Of course, words matter. And this is um, the third area of cues there's body language, vocal, words, and imagery. Words is also really important, especially your first 10 words. So in your video calls, I want you to think about the first 10 words out of your mouth. Oftentimes they are accidentally negative. So people will hop on a video call and they'll be like, oh man, the weather, those COVID numbers. I'm so tired. I'm so stressed. I'm so busy. And it's like, we just default to it. We don't even think, or can you see me? Can you hear me? Right. That is actually the, that's the biggest thing to is when you say, can you see me? Can you hear me? And you're leaning in like this. It's like the double wing It's like,
1: yeah, the double entendre of...
0: It's like horrible space, no greeting, terrible start. So I want you to think about before you even hop on your call, what am I opening with? What's my opener? And this can be very simple. Happy Monday. Happy Wednesday. So good to see you. I've been so looking forward to this. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, team. It's not like you have to start with a speech or a toast. It's just something small, positive that you can add.
1: I, I love that. And thank you for going specific. That is incredibly helpful. Okay,
0: good. And it's his checklist. I mean, look, this is how I learned charisma. I am not naturally charismatic. And so I have to think about what is the formula. And there are social blueprints. There are blueprints for how we like to interact. And if we know how to read those blueprints, we all feel better. Everyone feels better to win for everyone.
1: It does. It impacts everyone. You know, one of the parts that I loved in the book, you had made the point about it becomes contagious. If you are expressing cues that one <laughs> indicating happiness or indicating anything that's positive, quite frankly, then the other person therefore feels more positive. And consequently, you feel more positive as well. So, yes,
0: it really is like it is all linked together. <laughs> and I think we, this is like a gift we can give to the world. And like, I know that sounds super cheesy, but you know, we, are desperately needed connection now more than ever, and our cues are contagious, right? So if we show up as our warmest, most competent, most confident self, not only does that make us look good, which is great, that's a happy side effect, but we're also infecting other people to feel like their warmest, most competent most confident self. And this is because of a very specific neural feedback loop, which is when we're with humans, we cannot help but subtly mirror them, Now, the more we like someone, the more we mirror, the less we like someone, the less we mirror. It's a little bit harder on video, although it's still done. It happens even more in person. Actually, it even happens on the phone. Uh, We tend to mirror the vocal patterns of the person we're talking with. This is a natural response because as humans, we want to feel as the other person feels. So, if we're with someone and let's say that they're sad, they're having a hard day and they're pinching their eyebrows together and they're rolling their, they're pulling their mouth down to a frown and they're worried and they're anxious, we will subtly begin to mirror pinching our eyebrows together, pulling our mouth down so we can feel as they feel. And so if you show up with really confident, powerful, verbal, and nonverbal, other people are more likely to also mimic our confident, confident, memorable, and then feel better and more confident themselves. This is a way that I think we can act that is like giving gifts, right? You're giving these gifts of confidence and confidence. So if you can't do it for yourself, do it for others.
1: A long time ago, I heard someone say that, you know, one of the best gifts we can give is listening to other people. However, I would argue that to your point, one of the best gifts that we can give is not just listening to other people, but maybe even in how you listen and interact with other people. So very much appreciate that.
0: And like adding the engagement, right? Like we can listen actively or passively, but if we listen actively, we're actually creating contagion, which is Mm -hmm. super cool.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I like it. You mentioned imagery. I'm going to change topics on you here for a moment because I'm fascinated by the imagery side. And literally right before this I always have this routine where you know anybody who I'm going to be talking to I will click on their LinkedIn profile or their website or something else like just to get a picture in front of me so I can you know imagine the conversation that's about to take place that said I clicked on your LinkedIn profile and you had this post about a launch party that you were doing and one of the pieces in there was hey you know you want me to take a look at your LinkedIn profile or the picture in there and I was curious about that in particular because I think That is something that many people don't give a second thought to. Partially the imagery side, but partially, you know, LinkedIn, which is becoming more and more and more widely used every day. So tell me a little bit about what we should be looking for or could be looking for. Let's say that we want to convey confidence and likability in a LinkedIn photo, for example. Mm -hmm.
0: So what's happening, I think, and you're absolutely right, is we are forgetting that we are very rarely getting a true first impression anymore. Why? Because everyone is Googling us or clicking on our links. So our first impressions are actually happening digitally, right? If people have searched you beforehand, which is a lot of the time, right? Like a lot of interviews, a lot of meetings, even like I'm now meeting colleagues digitally before I'm even meeting them in person. You want to make sure that your digital first impression is exactly how you want to come across in person. And luckily, this is actually easier. I actually think it's easier to maintain a great static digital first impression. It's harder to do it in person. We just have to make sure that they align. The biggest mistake that I think a lot of people are making nowadays is they have this amazing digital first impression and it doesn't match up with their real self, or they have a terrible digital first impression and it doesn't match with their true self. So we want it to be accurate. That's very important. And we think about imagery. So there's a couple, there's two kinds of cues that we're sending in our digital first impression. In those first few milliseconds of someone seeing you, they're getting very quick but very simple cues. Yes, they're looking at your picture. They're looking at your gestures, your expression, your posture, your colors, but they're also very quickly looking at the first few words of your headline. So just like we talked about the verbal cues for your first 10 words out of your mouth, you also want those first 10 words in your headline to matter. So usually it's just a very quick snapshot. What I don't want you to do is go, is to go sterile. That's the mistake I actually see verbally on impressions is people use either buzzwords or they use really sterile words, like they're just their general title or a company that used to produce work workout. Is there a way that you can set yourself up for success by using the kind of words you want people to associate with you? So think about what is your ideal first impression? When people meet you, what do you want them to say about you? Collaborative, trustworthy, competent, powerful? Consider using those words in your headline. Remember, people are very triggered by those cues that associate you more likely to associate you with those words if they're true. They always want to make sure they're true. So think about using words that carry more power that are purposeful in the first few lines of your headline. On the imagery side, you have lots of choices. So we're constantly sending out imagery cues. That's the colors we wear, the props we hold, the props we wear, the props behind us. And so I think instead of making those sterile, a lot of people have you know a white background today. Unfortunately, I have a white background. <laughs> but you have the red. Yes. So that I knew I was like, Oh, I'm going to be in a really horrible conference room today. I'm wearing red friends. I am wearing red today because I knew I had to balance out the boringness behind me. So I want you to think about, you know, if you're going for a traditional corporate professional goal, yeah. You want to wear a business suit and a tie. If that's not your vibe, if you want to go more casual, if you want to be more in a team, easygoing, natural setting, Take off the blazer and put on something more casual, your background. If you want to be you know, in a traditional setting, you want to show a traditional setting. But if you want to be doing something more adventurous, more exciting, a little bit different, consider using a more exciting, more interesting background. So I think that we have to match all those cues. Like people often think, oh, it's a good picture of me. Therefore, it's good enough. It's not just about being a good or flattering photo. It's a contextually good photo. So you look good and like yourself. And your context, what you're wearing, what's behind you, what you're holding is also on the money.
1: I feel like that is a lens that is very commonly asked. Like I think about you know questions that we've been asked over the years and most of them are, Hey, what's good versus bad. Yeah. However, I don't find that that's a particularly useful way to look at anything for that matter, whether we're talking about imagery, whether we're right. talking about photos, whether we're talking about
0: headline, it doesn't yeah. matter. You're absolutely right. It's not good or bad. And that's a really important distinction. In fact, I'll give a very specific example for a prop. Yeah. Okay. So I have a student who wants to pivot his career from corporate leader to politics. He's in, he's in a new phase of his career. He wants to be an activist. So when he was in the corporate part of his career, he wore a business suit and tie. Right. So we were talking, about said, okay, well, how are we going to signal this change, right? This is a massive change in your career. It's and you're gonna be blasting out your network. You're gonna be fundraising. You want to signal this. So what's a very easy way is I'm gonna give you a little pop quiz here. Let's see. Can you think of a really easy way to signal I'm running for office. What's a prop? Can you think of it? When I say it, you're going to be like, oh, of course.
1: <laughs> I would say yes, something in the background, or you're at a White House looking thing, okay. or okay. I don't know. Okay, tell me. So you could
0: totally do a monument right behind you, absolutely. Yeah. But a flag pin. Oh, right? Like, yeah. Right? Obviously. So, I mean, when you <laughs> see someone in a room and they have a flag pin on, you're like, so politics? Right. Like you just we associate that small, tiny visual cue with either political ambitions or a strong stance. And so we changed the picture where he took off his tie because he wanted to be a little bit more, you know, the people. He's much more civically minded. So we took off the tie, but he's still in a business suit. And he added just a little bit, a little U.S. flag pin. And that was a completely different signal or visual cue that spoke for him. Now his first impression is much closer to where he wants to go. And it's a really, really small, subtle change, but it that cue is helping speak for him. I think that that's why I'm so glad you mentioned good versus bad is your cues can work for you, right? Like if you want to signal something ahead of your first impression or, or without you even having to say anything, those visual cues can help you with that. A flag pin is, is one of them.
1: So do you feel like you have to, since you have an entire book on cues, do you feel the pressure when you're at something like this to have all the cues that you want to tell me about that? What goes on in your head?
0: I feel free. Finally, actually, there was many years where I was trying on the 96 cues myself, right? Like yeah, I was like yeah. trying this one, and like I have some that I like, that I don't like. Like for example, a cue I don't use is the thumb pinch, right? Like this is a favorite of Barack Obama. He has a fist and he puts his thumb on top, and yep. that for me, I don't know. It's just like am I holding a wand? Like I don't know. It doesn't, <laughs> like, doesn't work Harry Potter's. What yeah, is I don't know. On. Like like you know, it's like leviosa. Like I don't know. I just it doesn't work for me. So I there was a many years where I was trying on these cues, and then when I would find one that hit, I wanted to talk about it. But because I didn't have this, you know, language, I hadn't cataloged them yet. I was sort of felt like I was discovered this recipe that I couldn't share. So actually, no, I feel so much relief now that we're all talking about these cues, because I feel like I can be myself. I can use the cues that I find natural. And when I don't find one that's natural, I can be like, oh, that was weird. I don't know why I did that cue. And so in a weird way, I'm really happy that I can have this shared language with my partner, with my team, with my colleagues. Like my interviews are more fun now because we can talk about specific things that work and don't work for us, for me, for you. So no, I it's it's been so much easier. Actually, it's been so fantastic. much easier.
1: That is fantastic. <laughs> what advice would you give to people who really want to get started mastering not all the cues, as we said earlier, but yeah. really identifying what is going to work for themselves and Mm. then get going on it. If they had to do just one thing, Mm. just one action or activity, what advice? Okay.
0: It's kind of a weird piece of advice, but I think it's the one really specific thing you can do, which is there was a specific study. I mentioned the book, (laughs) such a funny, funny study. They had speakers come on stage and give a short presentation. Then they had speakers think of Steve Jobs (laughs) and channel Steve Jobs and give another presentation. Just this exercise immediately improved the speaker's performance. They stayed on stage longer. They felt better about their presentation. They used more dynamic gestures. They had better vocal power. Like everything got better simply by just thinking of Steve Jobs. So what I would say is everyone should have like a speaking or a charisma role model. I love The Rock. Okay, I think The Rock is super charismatic. I did a breakdown of his cues on my YouTube channel because I wanted an excuse to watch eight hours of interviews with The Rock. And I have found that when I channel my charisma role models, my own nonverbal, my verbal, my vocal changes and I can try on cues. So very simply, over the next few weeks, I want you to channel whoever your charisma role model is and see what you what you do. You know, are you trying on using different gestures? Are you using different vocal cues? Does it make you feel more empowered? Those could be the first few cues that you can try to add to your repertoire.
1: That is fantastic. I very much appreciate you taking the time and making the time. And by the way, the book is Cues, Master the Secret Language of Charismatic Communication, Small Signals, Incredible Impact. And thank you for coming on and giving us so many specific examples. I appreciate it very, very much.
0: Oh my goodness. I want to thank you so much for having me, for letting me share all this work. For anyone who's listening, if you're a recovering awkward person and you're trying to make your cues work for you, remember it one cue at a time.
1: Most of our episodes on Happy to Your Career often showcase stories of people that have identified and found and taking the steps to get to work that they are absolutely enamored with, that matches their strengths and is really what they want in their lives. And if that's something that you're ready to begin taking steps towards, that is awesome. You can actually get on the phone with us and our team, and we can have a conversation to find the very best way that we can help. It's super informal, and we try to understand what your goals are, where you want to go, and what specifically you need our help with. And then we figure out the very best type of help for you, whatever that looks like, and sometimes even customize that type of help, and then we make it happen. A really easy way to schedule a conversation with our team is just go to scheduleaconversation.com That's scheduleaconversation.com and find a time that works best for you. We'll ask you a few questions uh, as well. And uh, then we'll get you on the phone and figure out how we can get you going to work that you really want to be doing. That fits your strengths that you love and you're enamored with. Hey, can't wait to hear from you. As I've Notice that I get a lot more meaning out of the work that I do out of the people that I hang out with out of the experiences that I have when there's less freedom ironically within which I get to choose from so I think to me freedom means the appropriate boundaries and constraints within which to play with full freedom all that and plenty more next week right here on Happen to Your Career. Make sure that you don't miss it. And if you haven't already, click subscribe on your podcast player so that you can download this podcast in your sleep and you get it automatically. Even the bonus episodes every single week, sometimes multiple times a week. Until next week, adios. I'm out.